it's time for you all to wake up and shift your paradigm. This world is the kingdom of darkness and we are living in its last days. It won't be long before the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and the earth and everything therein shall be burnt up. The Luciferian elite have been setting up the new world order and now they've established the globalist beast system for the rise of that wicked one and revealing of the man of sin who comes after the workings of Satan. Don't take my word for it. Read the Bible and you'll know that perilous times shall come in the last days and we are in the last days. Hell yeah. You got a uh, 
A direction off. He's stationary. He's about 8 to 10 miles, and he, he looks like he's coming right at us. He gets real bright, like he's got his landing lights on, then he starts away. Probably the comet. Yeah, we saw the comet about two weeks ago. We know what that looks like. It's in even close. Okay, Cactus 700. Take a look at 2 o'clock, 25 miles, about 2,000 feet above you. Let me know if you see any big traffic out there. That's that same planet that's been there for about three or four weeks. And the number seven uh, Sierra Juliet, your level at 39 now, is that correct? Ah, uh, that's probably. Gotcha. 11.46. Roger, seven Sierra Juliet, uh, you up your left wing now? Foot off our left wing now. Roger. Seven, contact you, approach 120.15. Okay, I've got to say, Roger's got the camp going to nine o'clock traffic. All civilizations attribute their genesis to contact with the gods. In their historical and spiritual texts, our ancestors maintained that immortal beings from elsewhere were responsible for the development of life on Earth. Despite common acceptance of these creation tales as mythology, sightings of supernatural beings and contact with them have persisted through to the 21st century. Could this be the worldwide UFO phenomenon? According to recorded history, laws, sciences, architecture, even writing itself, stem from knowledge received from the gods. The Bible has many accounts of flying objects and beings from elsewhere coming to the earth. Can these accounts shed light on the nature of the UFOs? Are they mere observers or participants on the world stage? Are they all benign, or do they have an agenda? And finally, do the UFOs fall in the scope of biblical prophecy? When the Lord said that in the last days knowledge would be revealed, the Spirit is beginning to show us the truth of it. Right? And as the Church is beginning to wake up to, to it, it's changing our perspective uh, considerably. It's making it so much more real, I think, than... Uh, uh, than it has been uh, in the past. But this is definitely the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no, no doubt in my mind whatsoever. While I was in seminary, uh, I became distressed over the fact that many of my professors in seminary did not seem to believe in what I would call some of the most basic things, such as the resurrection and ascension of Christ. The Christian faith does not work if there's no resurrection. And so I felt I needed to study the whole issue of eschatology, which is future things, uh, more deeply before I entered ministry. And so I went to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and spent three years doing my PhD there and studied the issues of eschatology, time and space, and the thought of Isaac Newton, because I was a 17th century figure who was pivotal in changing our understanding of the universe in which we live. Uh, by the time I was in my third year of PhD studies, suddenly the whole issue of how the space age might relate uh, to the Bible and the possibility that beings from another world might visit our planet and if they did so during biblical times what might the reaction be. These issues started uh, coming to my consciousness and then of course I made the connection with UFO reports. In 
Christian art, the question of how it was these human-like beings got to earth from up in the sky was dealt with by putting wings on them. Uh, they felt that you couldn't just fly around without wings, so they turned the angels into bird-like creatures so that they'd be humans with wings on, and that's how they got up into the sky. With the birth of the 20th century came advances in technology that allowed us to soar into the skies and even reach into the heavens. Because of the day and age in which we live and the kind of uh, uh, things that we're seeing in the world today with the technology and our search for extraterrestrials and those kinds of things are, are uh, top on people's minds uh, as, they, as they look outward. With those ideas in mind, as I began to read scripture, suddenly the angels started to appear more and more like those that are coming out of these ships. Uh, scripture refers to them often as uh, fiery chariots and the like. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in holiness. Psalm 68, 17. One of the strange things to me is that there's been very little connection between our idea of angels and UFOs. And yet the idea is that both are some kind of reality that comes from a higher world above Earth. And wherever that other world is, we don't know. And the possibility is that uh, both groups influence human development uh, and are guiding human development and perhaps are even acting in a godlike way in controlling uh, human culture. But there's never by and large, in modern thinking, there's been almost no attempt to connect the two. A well-known UFO sighting involves uh, the prophet Elijah. He finishes his life on Earth, and he goes to the Jordan River with his associate prophet Elisha, and, uh, and is taken up into the sky in a chariot of fire. In the New Testament, some magi, some wise men from the east, uh, saw a sign in the sky, which they thought was a star, called a star, and they followed it to the place where Jesus was born. And one of the interesting things that it says is that when the star came to the place where Jesus was, that it stopped. And stars don't usually move through the sky like this, nor do they stop after they've been moving. So this sounds more like uh, the type of thing that you would get from a UFO report. In UFO studies themselves, there are interesting reports of people out driving in a car. A UFO comes along, flies over their car, and then flies ahead of them and leads the way back to their home. So this idea of following the leader uh, is something we see in some modern UFO stories. Uh, it's there in the story of the birth of Jesus. And basically the Exodus story is a follow the leader story. The pillar of cloud and fire is the leader and uh, it's God leading the way to the promised land. As you start to, to look at this, it becomes clearer and clearer that the Lord and his angels exist in the physical universe. Maybe in other places too, but at least 
now we know that they're here. The supposition of the church has always been that everything was done by the supernatural power of God, kind of an energy that can do anything it wants to. And I suppose if you want to go that route, it's okay. But as we move ahead in our own technology, and we don't know the world of the angels doesn't use technology. When you're thinking, oh, God couldn't possibly use technology. And then I realized, well, we are, we are his children. Uh, I mean, even the dark angels are his children. And so that ability and that desire to explore and to expand and learn is part of our godliness, is part of our divineness. So it's, it's when we look at ourselves and say, yes, we are the children of God, and yes, we are going into space, and yes, we are using technology, because God's angels use technology, and God uses it as well. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that's reported in Exodus chapter 13 verses 21 and 22 in fullest detail and it's said that the pillar cloud by day and the pillar fire by night led the exodus. Uh, it hovered above the ground, it was cloud-like during the day, it glowed in the dark. Some of the modern uh, cloud cigars have been reported to be bigger than our battleships, maybe a quarter of a mile long, and that they would serve as the mothership for the small, smaller flying saucer type UFOs. The ascension of Jesus is spoken of in Acts chapter 1, and uh, it basically says that Jesus had some parting words for the disciples, and then he was lifted up into the air in a cloud, and the two angels or men stood by and said, this Jesus whom you see going into heaven will return in the same way. So the doctrine of the second coming of Christ was established right there at the beginning of chapter 1 in Acts. Uh, it, it's interesting that However it was that we might suppose Jesus went away at that time, he returns in a similar way in Acts chapter 9 when the Apostle Paul, who is persecuting the Christian church and on his way to Damascus to put Christians in jail, when suddenly a bright light hovers over him and the company that was with him on the road to Damascus, and he uh, hears a voice speaking to him, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he answers back with the question, who are you, Lord? And the answer is, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. So the, the means by which Jesus returns to earth on the Damascus Road seems to be consistent with the way he went away at the time of the ascension. Perhaps the most detailed UFO report in the Bible is in the book of Ezekiel. And here the UFO itself is referred to as being like burnished bronze, so it has a metallic appearance. Uh, it probably has landing gear, it appears. Uh, and so the way in which it's described, it even has eyes around it. And being like a wheel within a wheel is a pretty good description of what some modern flying saucer type UFOs have been reported to appear and so on. What I did was, in the first chapter of Ezekiel, I just took a pencil on a piece of paper and I sketched out the description, and when I drew those eyes, of course, around the you know, outside of the rim, I, it was like it was like looking at a 1950s version of a flying saucer. Ezekiel, an Old Testament prophet of the sixth century B.C., has left a record of his encounters with God and of the interaction that ensued.
With many of his people, he was taken captive to Mesopotamia, where, according to scripture, the first encounter occurred. Artists throughout the ages have depicted this encounter as they saw it. of it like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. The appearance of the wheels of their work was like the color of a barrel, and they four had one likeness, and their appearance and their work was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not when they went. As for their rims, they were so high that they were dreadful, and their rims were full of eyes round about them four. Coming to realize that, that God has uh, come into the universe as a physical being was, was a great revelation to me. Well, the biblical view of angels was they could be very human-like. In fact, you might not be able to tell the difference between an ordinary human and an angel. And that, in fact, goes way back to Abraham in the book of Genesis, where three men came to meet with Abraham and eventually foretold the birth of his son Isaac. Abraham come to understand that these were agents of God or angels of God. Suddenly, the existence of the Lord's angels on our planet became very real. And the possibility of meeting them, because uh, our scripture says, you know, you may entertain an angel unawares. And so suddenly that becomes not some sort of ethereal event, but rather a real person uh, actually coming uh, and visiting in this case. The angels in the Bible uh, usually appeared in human form and appeared very briefly as in the case of the angel that uh, descended from heaven and rolled back the stone at the tomb of Jesus and then sat upon it. Obviously you understand that this being is very human-like. And there's no report there actually of the angel having any wings. And in fact, there's uh, a passage in the book of Hebrews which says, be sure to entertain strangers because thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It seems to me that the doctrine of the resurrection suggests that we humans will end up in a world, a heavenly world, which we have bodies. That's what the uh, the Apostle Paul seems to promise in 1 Corinthians 15 in his long statement on the resurrection of the body. And of course, the resurrection of the body of Jesus is meant to uh, confirm that idea that we're not just going to be spirits that have no dimension, but we're going to have bodies, a spiritual body, but nevertheless a body that could be touched the way uh, Thomas and the others touched the body of Jesus. 
See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Luke 24, 39. The Bible speaks of a spiritual, physical body. The idea that God and angels take this shape simply to interact with humans is beyond the scope of the biblical text. In our culture, some scientists speculate that the key to immortality may lie in DNA. At first I was thinking, how is it possible for God to be a person, right, in a body? When we think of God as being omnipresent and omnipotent everywhere, inside and outside of all things, how is this possible? And so the, the mind tends to, to go to the, uh, the extreme, the large, the imperceivable, right? when, we, when we think about God. And so what I found, uh, began to realize what I was doing was I was limiting God's power. I was saying to myself, oh, God couldn't do this. Because he is so big and, and inconceivable, how could he be a person? Well, and then I realized what, what Christ said with God, all things are possible. And so when I thought that God had created this universe and then entered into it right, to be part of it, and then have a son right, for which he we believe he created it, it was, a, was a wonderful revelation. The UFOs have already kept us from annihilating ourselves. Uh, I think that UFOs started um, doing things that led to the formation of the, the hotline in the United States and Russia back when we had the weapons to do bad stuff and we were thinking, uh, let's strike first. There are stories of UFOs flying in formation and triggering the NORAD sightings, okay? And they were all set to push the buttons and then they realized UFOs are doing this. So then Moscow and Washington had to start talking to each other. Uh, they also had UFOs flying over nuclear sites a lot. Uh, UFOs flew over a nuclear hardened silo out in, I believe, South Dakota and changed the, retargeted the warhead in there. Now, if you're, if you're the President of the United States and you're thinking of pushing the button and the guys out there told you, well, you did have it targeted for, Mo for Moscow, but guess what? A UFO came and retargeted it for, for Washington. So if you push the first strike button, guess what? They're get it's getting you. How did this happen? We don't know. A UFO flew over it. Apparently, they can control our technology the angels that came to uh, meet with Abraham and tell him that uh, Isaac would be born, or the angels liberating Jews from Egypt, or the angel coming down from the sky to roll back the tomb and raise Jesus. These are all good angels. What about bad angels? This war that was uh, happening between uh, the fallen angels and, and our Lord's angels. And uh, as we began to study it, you see, started to realize that uh, the dark angels, Satan's angels, are here on planet Earth. Our perception of reality has been skewed by the artistic depiction of angels. The angelic reality, or UFOs as we call them today, have been a constant in human history and have been an integral part of our story. 
for uh, many centuries now, Satan literally, literally, has been ruling the world. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and all its glory, for it has been handed to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Matthew 4, 8, 9. Satan has been ruling uh, through his minions and through his officers and generals and so forth, and he, real beings, real people. And the Lord said that he would give him four kingdoms right, uh, before he would return. The book of Daniel records that in the 6th century before Christ, during the Jewish exile to Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that disturbed him greatly. He tested the elders of his court by asking them to tell him the dream, followed by its interpretation. Nobody could accomplish this feat but a young Daniel, one of the Jewish exiles to whom this matter was revealed by God. Daniel tells the king he dreamed of a statue with a head of gold, breasts and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron mixed with clay. A stone appeared which struck the feet and crushed them. The statue crumbled and turned to dust and was carried away by wind. All that remained was the stone that became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel tells the king that God has revealed to him the sequence of world empires from the time of Nebuchadnezzar to the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. The Fourth Empire, Rome, is separated into East and West. The Eastern part of the empire is conquered by Islam. Constantinople is renamed Istanbul. The Western part remains the dominant world power. According to the Bible, these four empires are ruled by the fallen angels, the gods.
when Christ said that uh, Satan's throne was in Pergamum, uh, that was a, you know, that was I think the first real clue that something else was going on as well. And so when we when we looked at that, we found that well, the throne of Zeus was in Pergamum, a huge temple right there. Scripture records that after Jesus ascended to God. He sent an angel to earth with a message which was recorded by his disciple John. The content of this message is referred to as the Book of Revelation. It begins with seven messages conveyed to seven Christian congregations of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Revelation 2, 12, 13. Jesus makes an association between the city of Pergamum and the throne of Satan, suggesting that something visible is pointed out. Textual and archaeological evidence point to the same candidate, the great altar of Pergamon, one of the most significant and stunning monuments to survive from the Greco-Roman world. Today it is preserved in the Berlin State Museum. On it is depicted a cosmic battle between the gods and the titans, their hybrid offspring, flesh and bone descendants of heaven and earth. A connection is made by Jesus between the leader of the gods, Zeus in the Greek pantheon, and Satan, the leader of the fallen angels. We began to take a look at the uh, Roman and Greek uh, gods and began to realize that they were the one and the same fallen angels. These were real beings who were setting up real kings on the earth uh, ruling under their auspices, whatever they decided they wanted to do. And we see this, this pattern in mythologies uh, all over the world. Uh, uh, in the Greeks, the, certainly the Egyptians, there's no doubt about that, the Lord himself, uh, when, uh, when he uh, killed the firstborn of Egypt uh, at the Exodus, uh, uh, also said that he was putting their gods under judgment. Now, one doesn't put an, a, a stone statue under judgment. I mean, this is, you know, so obviously uh, this was a war uh, with these gods, these fallen angels. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Exodus 12:12 12, 12 In 303 AD Diocletian sent a messenger to the oracle of Apollo to ask about the Christians. The answer came from Apollo, enemy of the gods. 
As a result, Emperor Diocletian on February 23, 303, chose the festival of the god Terminus to commence the termination of Christianity. Edicts were published decreeing, Christians holding public office are to be put out. All accusations against Christians are to be received. They are to be tortured, their scriptures confiscated and burned, the church buildings to be destroyed, the civil rights of Christians denied. Presidents, bishops, and leaders of churches are to be arrested and compelled to sacrifice to the gods. Wild beasts, burnings, stabbings, crucifixions, the rack, all the reliable methods of torture were mercilessly employed. In certain places, it lasted eight years, and it is known to historians as the Great Persecution. Another one of these so-called gods who has exercised a large influence over humanity is the one who presents herself as the mother goddess. She has various names in various civilizations, but one of her favorite epithets is the Queen of Heaven. She is referred to in the Bible by that name. In the post-Christian era, she presents herself as Mary to the church. In the modern world, we see reports of believers being told to gather, awaiting a sign from the Queen of Heaven, Mary. And when they gather, silver discs appear. The most famous of these incidents, according to ufologists, is Fatima. In October 1917, 60,000 people gathered to receive a sign, and three silver discs appeared. As a result of this, the people felt sudden intense heat, drying of clothing and of the soil, physiological effects or miraculous cures. Could the same fallen angels who presented themselves as gods to our ancestors be reinventing themselves for the modern world as modern-day gods or as aliens who have come to rescue us from ourselves? The Mayan calendar starts at 3114 BC and ends at 2012 AD. In 755 AD, Mayan priests prophesied that the total eclipse of the sun of July 11, 1991 would herald two events, cosmic awareness and earth changes. On that day, shortly after 1 p.m., a silver disk hung motionless below the total solar eclipse. By appearing during this eclipse, the UFOs have identified themselves to many as the Mayan gods.
The solar eclipse, labeled the sixth sun by the Mayan priests, has been followed by a wave of UFO sightings in Mexico, which continue to this day. In March of 2004, the Mexican Air Force captured this footage on an infrared camera. The footage was released to the public. This video, captured by NASA, shows two UFOs. It appears one of the UFOs is fired upon as it zooms away. This war is a, is a real thing to me now, and that the enemy are real, real beings, real people, and that real angels, God's angels, are also here with us. One of the strangest aspects of the current UFO research is the widespread emergence of abduction reports. Now these stories are too bizarre to be accepted and yet they're too consistent to ignore. There are actually conferences at MIT and elsewhere on the subject of what to do about these things. People are not only citing UFOs, they are apparently being abducted by them. And what's strange about these reports is they virtually always involve some kind of intrusive medical examination that always seems to have something to do with the reproductive system. And there are experts, such as Dr. John Mack at Harvard, uh, who's the head of psychiatry there. He's come out publicly and indicated that he personally is convinced that these things are alien, these uh, alien beings have an agenda to reproduce hybrids. And uh, this has, of course, shocked the psychiatric world because he's quite a prominent, well-credentialed expert. So something's going on, and of course it's not free of controversy. Many people have different views, but what we put forth is the possibility that this may very well be a fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus hinted at when he warned us about these things. People all over the world have the same experiences in precisely the same details, uh, and so it's anybody and everybody. There isn't anybody 
who is predisposed to being abducted. The only thing is, is that their mother or their father must have been an abductee. We conducted a poll in 1991 of 6,000 randomly selected adults in the United States from all sections of the country, from all walks of life, done to the Roper Organization. Not asking people necessarily whether they've been abducted or not, because people don't remember what's happened to them. We'll ask them questions that abductees answer affirmatively in very high percentages. The numbers were so high that uh, we knew that politically we could not come forward with them. They were just insane. So we became extremely conservative with this poll. And we decided that we would only accept people who answered affirmatively to the five highest indicator questions of whether they've had abduction experiences. Although any question answering affirmatively to who could have meant that they were an abductee. Then we decided we would only count those people who answered yes to the five higher indicated questions uh, if they answered yes to four or all five of them. It was possible, in other words, to answer affirmatively to seven questions out of the ten and be dropped from the poll. Maybe even eight questions and be dropped from the poll. When we did that, we got it down to 2% of the American people. The numbers are probably going to hold constant when everything is leveled out around the world. It's somewhere between 2 and 5% and probably closer to 5 or 6% actually. I've done about 900 hypnotic regressions. I've cataloged 650 of them or so. They will tell me something like, in 1996, I was with my friend. We looked up, and, uh, and we saw this UFO coming down towards us. And you know, the next thing we knew, we were both running, and, and it was two hours later. We then begin to look into these, these events through hypnosis. We're looking at this uh, primarily from a neurological point of view in terms of remembering, and from an experiential point of view in terms of remembering what happened. sound and I looked towards my sliding door. I saw this object hovering above the tree line, taking up a great part of my view. It had a round part that was twirling constantly and flashing different lights the white light on the top, the colored lights around, and a dark metallic material. I said, Hedy, this is something like the lifesaver colors. I fixed it in my mind. I ran, got my uh, binocular, and was watching through that. I don't know how long I was looking at it before eventually it started drifting above the treetops to the left of my view. I wasn't dressed, so I just watched until it disappeared from my view. I don't know how long, how many days, maybe even a week or so went by. I heard something fall on the floor, and I went over and picked it up, and I'm looking my binocular. What's my binocular doing here? 
this is not where I keep it. And then click. That was the second when everything came back. They know odd things have been happening. They don't remember what's happened to them, but they know odd things have been happening to them, let's just say. And they go, they have a route that they go to. The first route would be to go to a therapist, say, Doc, what's wrong with me? I, I wake up in the middle of the night and I, there's beings standing around my bed, let's just say, and my first impulse is to go right to sleep, which they know is un unusual because you'd think if somebody was standing around your bed, there'd be an adrenaline rush, the likes of which you've never had before in your life. And uh, you would not go to sleep. And of course, they don't go to sleep. They think they did, but they don't. People say, uh, I'm taken out of my room and I'm going uh, and, and I'm going to the window. And they're taking me right to the window into the, into the UFO, floating up. And the first time I heard this, I'd say, wait a minute now. You're walking towards the window. There are these beings with you. You can't run. You can't scream. You're rendered passive. You get to the window. Do you open the window? I say, no, they say, I think I'm floating right through the closed window. And they'll say to me, does anybody else ever report that? Not knowing that everybody reports that, everybody. Now, if this were psychological, I say, yeah, I opened the window. Because it makes their story sound natural, normal, logical. Why wouldn't they open the window? There's no big deal in opening the window. Of course they opened the window. We just don't get that. And they know that it sounds crazy to say that they're floating through the window. They say, I can see people standing there even sort of looking in my direction. But it's obvious that they're not shrieking in horror and running. They're just idly walking the dog or whatever it is. For that part of the abduction sequence, they are rendered unseeable to maintain the secrecy of this phenomenon. And it's something we can't get away from. It's embarrassing. They're invisible, let's just say, in order because they're going through a solid object, glass, or the wall sometimes, or through the ceiling sometimes. So you're looking, I think, at advanced technology. When people are abducted, they're taken on board a UFO. Uh, their clothes are removed, they're placed on a table, and they have three events that happen to them broadly conceived. There are physical procedures, mental procedures, and reproductive procedures. When men began to multiply on the face of the land, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Genesis 6, 1 and 2. There certainly have been sightings in ancient, that may be embraced by ancient mythology. The idea that the modern sightings might have a relationship with the ancient Nephilim uh, events of the Old Testament is conjecture on the part of some of us as scholars, uh, but I think the, uh, it would seem to be consistent with the remarks of Jesus himself. As Jesus himself said, that as we get to the end times, he says, as the days of Noah were, 
so shall the days of the Son of Man be. Now that, what he might mean by that is simply that it was business as usual until the judgment came. And that's what many scholars would, would, would uh, infer. But there are many scholars that believe the text implies even more than that. In order to understand what Jesus meant, we need to understand what the days of Noah were like. And clearly the uh, sixth chapter of Genesis demonstrates that the purpose of the flood of Noah was to deal with what was in effect a gene pool problem. There isn't anybody who is predisposed to being abducted. The only thing is, is that their mother or their father must have been an abductee. And what that means is that they're abducted from the time they're infants all the way through until the time they're adults. And they're abducted in great frequency over and over and over again. They usually talk about uh, uh, having sperm taken, having eggs taken, uh, harvested essentially. When women become older, they discuss fetal implantations where they, they suddenly realize they're pregnant. And I'll take an early pregnancy test and it shows positive, which of course can't be possible. And they'll go to their gynecologist who'll do a blood test, which is absolute, which is 100% uh, reliable. And the doctor will say, congratulations, you know, you're pregnant. And they think to themselves, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Doctors uh, invariably think pseudosiesis, uh, which would be hysterical pregnancy, when a person or a woman really, really, really wants a child and begins to fantasize it and even causes some sort of physiological reaction. Uh, however, most people are not like that. They, some people have already had kids, they don't want any more. Uh, some are too young for you. Know, there's, you have to have a certain sort of mental set to have pseudosiesis. Uh, or they think miscarriage. And for women, uh, they would say, well, you know, if I had a miscarriage, I think I would have noticed that. With fetal implantation, we get, of course, fetal extraction. When they are not pregnant, they will remember events that happen where a fetus is extracted from them. It's very, very small, but they'll know during the event that the fetus is being taken. But it happens to them so often, it's familiar. So we see these reproductive procedures quite a bit. In fact, it's, the, it's critical to the, to the abduction phenomenon. Without the reproductive aspects of it, there wouldn't be a, an abduction phenomenon. This is, this is the point of it. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Genesis 6, 3, and 4. The word Nephilim comes from the Hebrew verb nephal, the fallen ones. They are the hybrid offspring of the Benaiah Elohim, the sons of God. It's a technical term, Hebrew term, used of angels. And uh, these fallen angels cohabited with human women and produced a hybrid offspring. It was part of Satan's strategy. This view of Genesis chapter 6 and all of that is not free of controversy today. However, that is the view that was embraced by the ancient Hebrew sages. That is the view that is substantiated by the ancient rabbinical writings. That is the view that was accepted by the early church. When the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, the language is even more specific. And so uh, this idea that they were somehow just a leadership or sons of Adam or something were contrived arguments that emerged in the fifth century, so-called lines of Seth idea. And that's still taught in many seminaries. The problem with it, it's not biblical.
practice in the New Testament. It even confirms this. Both Peter and Jude make reference to this clearly talking about these angels that went after strange flesh, that abandoned their previous clothing, they disrobed from their previous existence to indulge in this, uh, what shall I call it, chicanery. This event was echoed in mythologies everywhere as the age of the titans and demigods, the same way that the UFO phenomenon is echoed in our fiction. When we study the passage in Genesis 6, we'll notice that one of the distinctives of Noah was that his genealogy was unblemished. And the Hebrew word there is to mean which is used of physical defects. In other words, one of the reasons that Noah was picked, probably many, but one was that one of his distinctives was that his genealogy wasn't contaminated by these goings on. It would appear that the strategy of Satan was to introduce this as a means of corrupting the human line to preclude God's plan of redemption through the Messiah, which had to be a kinsman of Adam. The parable of Jesus that I count as foundational for Satan and evil is the one where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who owned a field and sowed good seed in it, had his servants go good seed in it, and then by night an enemy came and sowed weeds in the field and then went away. Well, the Nephilim in the book of Genesis, of course, are the hybrid offspring of these strange interludes between the fallen angels and the daughters of, of man, of, of Adam. And so they're hybrids, and uh, they are uh, very prominent in uh, the early chapters of Genesis, but they're also, the scripture says, occurred after that to some extent, right. but they're hybrids. As we study the passages in the Bible that describe what we call the end times, it's interesting that one of the characteristics that shows up in Daniel 2 is that it says they will mingle themselves with, with the seed of men. The prophetic dream of Nebuchadnezzar gives us an astonishing detail concerning end times. Scripture indicates that the last government of earth will be a hybrid government iron mixed with clay. And where you saw iron mixed with merry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not adhere to one another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Daniel 2.43 Now in order for them to mingle with the seed of men, the they have to be something other than the seed of men. So it's just a hint, but it's a profound hint that somehow in the end times there's going to be again some kind of commingling, some kind of intrusion into the genetic DNA makeup of people that's going to be a contaminant that will be part of the end times. And that's why there's so much scholastic interest in this UFO business, in the abduction narratives and, and reports, and we may very well be being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about any other period of time in history, including the time of the Gospels, when Jesus walked the shores of Galilee. When people are abducted, as part of the procedures, they will sometimes be taken into a room and they will see 
containers. And in each container, there's liquid, and in the middle of the liquid, there's a tiny fetus floating. Later, they'll be shown babies. Small, odd-looking babies, as they will report. Their babies don't look right. Physically, they're phlegmatic. They're, they look like they're sick. They're not bouncing babies that are grasping and gurgling. They're silent. They, they, they almost look like they're half-dead. They also have unusual features. People say they look like they're sort of half-human, half-alien. They're, they're, they're odd-looking, and yet they look sort of human. Uh, my colleague Bud Hopkins says that they called them hybrids originally, and that's a name that's, that's stuck. They then will have to hold the baby, have some sort of physical contact with the baby, put their hand on the baby's stomach, hold the baby close to their skin. There must be skin-on-skin -skin contact. Oftentimes, when the baby's a little bit older, they're required to feed the baby. Sometimes they'll be brought into a room, this is now men and women, where there will be what looks like two-year-olds, three-year-olds, one-and-a-half-year-olds walking around, and they are required to play with them, have contact with them, and uh, we see these toddlers when they're four years old, five, seven years old, nine years old, they're already children, young children at that point. People describe them as adolescents, they describe them as young adults, they describe them as adults, and they don't describe them as older adults so much. By the time uh, we see them as adolescents, uh, we see them involved with the abduction phenomenon, performing tasks, they have jobs to do, they're part of the, the world of abductions, uh, going about their business, doing, doing what's required of them. Let's remember that when Jesus briefed four disciples in his confidential briefing on his second coming, he opened his discussion and he closed his discussion with the urgent admonition, let no man deceive you. We need to understand that the characteristic of the period that we're being plunged into is one of deceit, one of very clever uh, misguidance by the enemy. We do have an enemy. He's very knowledgeable, very resourceful. And we are moving into open spiritual warfare. We're used to conflicts in countries about politics, different views. Today, there's a fundamental war going on in worldviews. Sometimes, uh, abductees will be brought into a room and their attention will be directed at a screen-like device. And the person will hear a, uh, a voice in their mind saying, can you tell the difference between us and you. Now, depending on who the person is, they will say, what do you mean the difference between us and you? Everybody is the same. And they'll hear in their head, see, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? This Pretty soon, in the future, we will all be together. You won't be able to tell the difference, and it will be wonderful. Some will be able to tell the difference. Some will say, well, yes, this one here looks like you, and this one here looks like us. At that point, they will say, well, you know, there will be a difference, but we will all be together, and, and, and you're one of the lucky ones. You can tell the difference. Most people won't be able to. The key fact here is that they're all saying, in the future, we'll all be together. As you follow the progress through the centuries and you see how 
uh, the power structures have changed that has been going more and more towards an economical power structure uh, to control the world with, uh, uh, with money. And that seems to be where it's going. Uh, more and more we're looking towards a world uh, bank, one world system, one world currency. I mean, already Europe has joined its currency together. Americans, North Americans are thinking the same way. So this is really the work of Satan. This is his way of getting command and control over the entire world. The, as we deal with the end-time scenario in the Bible, one of the dominant players is a world leader. In fact, it's two guys working together, but it's a, a world leader that is going to successfully unite the world into a one-world religion. He's going to exalt himself above all that is called God, that includes Allah, as well as the Jews and the Christians. He somehow is going to deceive the whole world. He's the most popular guy that's ever come along. There are experts that have studied the scripture that believe that he could very well have an alien connection or even be one himself. Uh, involvement of these alien entities may be a far bigger factor in the climax that the Bible portrays than most classical scholars have really uh, been sensitive to. phenomenon that is global, that is random, that is intergenerational, that happens in great frequency, something we never expected to see, uh, that is goal-directed, that is done clandestinely, secretly, and that has as its goal ultimately an integration into the society on their terms, not on our terms. And I think that there's not a lot we can do about it, unfortunately. You know, it's interesting that in the book of Genesis, the very first prediction of Jesus Christ, is when God declares war on Satan in Genesis chapter 3 and he speaks that the ultimate redemption of man will come from the seed of a woman and there is even a hint of the virgin birth but that phrase is actually a contradiction in biology as well as grammar but that's the term used but most people overlook in that very verse he also speaks of the seed of the serpent and so it's clear that Satan has a role in this final climax that we're all heading to
what we think is going on here is because eggs are taken and sperm is taken, that they are joined together in vitro. They are joined together outside, and at that point, either DNA is added or the fertilized egg is altered in some way. And when that happens, we posited that you're going to get a bell-shaped curve that some are going to look really alien, some are going to look really human, and most are going to be in the middle. What we've also learned is that what they then do is take the DNA from one of these hybrid children and inject that into the embryo. And then you get a skewed bell-shaped curve where some of them look alien, a lot look in the middle, and a lot more look a lot more human. Then you take DNA from that generation and do the same thing. And you keep doing it over and over and over again until pretty soon you get hybrids that look very human. There's slight differences, but very human. And that is, in fact, what we have been seeing, much to our amazement and uh, chagrin. But in contrast to stories from the ancient world, which produced giants, sexual contact between aliens and humans is absent. Perhaps this time a different strategy is at hand. I now believe that this is a kind of integration program into the society. As a program, it is being done for a reason. It is goal-directed, and it had a beginning, a middle, and it's got an end. They are doing this for a reason. That's critically important to understand. Not only that, this is clandestine. It is secret, and it is secret for a reason. I've been involved with studying UFOs and abductions for over 40 years, and it was always kind of thrilling and exciting. Now it's depressing and fearful, uh, and it's not something that I enjoy hearing. As an academic, you're required to examine that data to see whether it's true or not, and if it is true, to go where the evidence leads you, even though you might kick and scream while en route, and I have kicked and screamed en route, but as an honest academic, you're required to do that. And as a historian, you're required to do that especially. And that is where it has led me, and it has led me into areas that I, I don't want to go. Not only that, it's embarrassing to talk about this. I understand how completely insane it sounds. I am fully aware of my words, of what I'm saying, and, and the effect that this has on people. Oh, this is just nuts. And, and I, I understand that. But in order to be academically honest, I must say it nonetheless, even though it puts me in a very bad position. I am waiting for the coming of Christ. I believe he is coming in ships, mm -hmm. yeah? and that he will come and collect us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17
This prophesied collecting event could be understood as a mass abduction. Satan and his chosen hybrid may villainize the coming Messiah and deceive the world they rule by misrepresenting him. Concerning the world leader, Scripture states, Some of the passages that puzzle me the most in the scripture, it describes that the whole world is going to go to war against God. Now, I can understand the world rejecting God, I can understand the world not believing God, but somehow it's always been hard for me to visualize the world mustering its resources to go to war against God. That all, and yet that's clearly what it says in Psalm 2 and a number of other places. But you know, suddenly I can begin to understand how this might happen, because there are many people that believe that there are already aliens among us uh, conspiring with the government, whatever, and they visualize these as being the good guys. They're here to help us. They're here to give us advanced technology. They're people that really have this kind of attitude. One of the other procedures that people describe is a certain kind of staring procedure. Uh, where a person will say that, that they're being looked at, and I'll say, well, well, what do you mean being looked at? Do you mean they're just looking you over, you know. I'll say, no, no, his forehead is touching mine. I'll say, well, can you close your eyes? No. Can you look away? No. And they're being stared at at a distance of maybe an inch, two inches, sometimes forehead touching forehead. What this is, is some sort of neural engagement. And people can, can see and, and imagine things that, that are going on in their brain, practically. They can, they can almost understand where the, which neurons are being innervated as they're hooking into the optic nerve and using that as a conduit to go into other neural pathways and innervate specific anatomical sites within the brain. People see images in their mind when this happens. They will see images of horrible events, catastrophic events happening. Uh, the earth breaking in two, uh, nuclear war, a, a meteor hitting. In this imaging that they're going through, they will have a job to do or tasks to do and they had to make sure that, that they performed these correctly. And we began to realize that from the time they were children all the way up through adults, they were being trained over and over again to obey eventually uh, the signal when it was given for them to, to do certain tasks that they had to perform in the future. We have entered into the end stage of this program, and that's what people are beginning to report much to my um, uh, fear of this going on. I, I don't like hearing this, but I think that that is what people are reporting now, and that's, I just am forced to go with that evidence. I can begin to see uh, a, a scenario which we sometimes call good cop, bad cop kind of thing, where, the, where Satan's emissaries pose to be our friends to help prepare us for the bad guys who are coming. And, and uh, I can visualize the whole world being deceived and taking up arms against God, thinking that they're being led by their friends who are actually Satan's emissaries. Uh, 
there are passages in the book of Revelation which describe spirits like frogs that lead the whole world to the battle of God Almighty. And I, I, I suddenly can, in my imagination at least, visualize a scenario where these beings, if they become prevalent enough and more powerful enough and accepted enough by the culture, uh, getting the culture to take up arms against the second coming of Christ. And that could be what the Bible also seems to allude to called the great lie. Because the scripture does say that God will send them strong delusion that they will believe the lie, not just a lie, not just deceit. There's apparently a specific, gigantic deceit that's going to be involved here. The big lie, I think, that's coming is that Satan has got to fool the world, he's got to lie to the world, got to make them believe that the one who is coming, Christ, the Son of God, is, is some sort of alien invader who is coming to take over the world. Right? And so making him seem like an, like an alien invader will make it very easy to get the uh, armies of the world and the governments of the world in line to defend the world against such an invasion. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. Why would the armies of the world fight Christ when he came, right? Well, they had to be, number one, fighting for Satan against Christ. Right? So Satan has got to fool the world, he's got to lie to the world, got to make them believe that the one who is coming, Christ, the Son of God, is, is some sort of alien invader who is coming to take over the world. Right? And so making him seem like an, like an alien invader will make it very easy to get the uh, armies of the world and the governments of the world in line to defend the world against such an invasion. So this is one possibility, I think, that, uh, uh, that's coming. Last fired. Seven, go ahead. I'm talking at 10 o'clock high. This is the Valley of Megiddo, north of Jerusalem, where good is to triumph over evil in the final battle of this cosmic war. The prophesied kingdom of the Messiah will then be established. Every culture sees the same phenomenon through the filter of its own paradigm. However, the Bible presents us with a reality that spans all civilizations, in which the angels of God are here on earth, and their influence is unmistakable. The UFO phenomenon is evidence of their presence. Throughout the ages, Satan has worn the cloak of many disguises, and has brought entire civilizations under his worldview, reinventing himself each time, always as a higher entity, a god. Today, he has turned himself into a myth, fictionalized history, and has been rewriting it for us. 
Scripture cuts through his disguises and reveals their evil strategy. Will you recognize the truth? Will the world, at Satan's command, take up arms against God as prophesied? At this turning point in our history, as the fallen angels present themselves as the saviors of mankind, will you be seduced? Keep my eyes open, but I don't see anything. Northwest of 